I want to begin today with the last verse of our second lesson. St. Paul, speaking to the church in Philippi, says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Look at what dearness the apostle has for his flock. He loves and longs for them. They are his joy and his crown. And he bids them, stand firm, my beloved. As we come to today's main text, our sermon in our sermon series on Abraham in the book of Genesis, we are in the midst of mourning with Abraham. Even in the midst of mourning, however, we see that Abraham is walking in God's promise and moving forward in its fulfillment. And so I want to look today at two things. Number one, that Sarah and Abraham are models of faith in things unseen. They are models of faith in things unseen. And number two, that as children of promise, Christians must trust in things unseen. As St. Paul urges, we must stand firm in the faith and trust in things unseen. Well, we see the effects in today's first reading of sin upon Abraham and his family. The curse of Adam and Eve's deception, partaking both of them of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the beginning of Genesis, here has brought them death. Death is a part of the world post-fall, isn't it? Tragically, and the joy of relationships are torn apart by it. Death is a part of life because of, we live in a Genesis 3 world. People are separated by it. And here, the lifelong partnership of Abraham and Sarah in matrimony is sundered by death. Look at verses 1 and 2 of our first lesson on page 1 in the order of service. We read, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kerath Arabah, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah, of course, you'll remember, is Abraham's first wife. She's been with him since before he left Ur, that city in the Chaldeans, with his father. One scholar estimates that Abraham and Sarah were married for 100 years, if you look at their relationship and how things developed at that time when marriage was. Can you imagine being married for 100 years? <laughs> I know some of you have been married for a long time, and some of you have not been married at all yet. And, and yet I marvel at that, to be married for 100 years. And yet I can't imagine Abraham's pain of this loss, right? The loss of living with someone for 100 years here in Sarah's death. Abraham is distraught. He's in mourning. 
we read in verses 1 and 2 that he mourns, and we read that he weeps. But that doesn't begin to tell of his mourning. You see, the Hebrew text here tells a fuller story that to mourn, in Hebrew here, safad, means to beat his breast in grief. To beat his breast in grief. And to weep, the Hebrew word baka, means to weep bitterly and to wail. Taken together, these two words are shorthand in the Hebrew culture for a mourning ritual, but Abraham goes beyond the mourning ritual in his mourning. This ritual was to rend one's garments, to tear one's clothes apart, to dishevel one's hair, to cut one's beard, to scatter ashes on one's head, and to fast all the while, weeping and mourning. And verse 3 talks about Abraham rising up from the dead. Did you catch that? Verse 3, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites. But what's going on there? Well, one in this culture, when one mourned, one actually mourned in front of the body. And so Sarah would have been here in front of Abraham in the tent. And he went in and did all of these things in mourning for her death, deeply distraught. And he rises up after being on the ground in front of her body because he loves her so deeply and goes to the Hittites. Now, Abraham had loved Sarah deeply. She, was, she prospered with him, but she also paid dearly for his sins at times, didn't she? as we've seen throughout this series. The Bible honors her in at least two ways. Number one, and this is a good trivia fact in case you ever need some cocktail hour conversation, who's the only woman whose age is mentioned at her death in the Bible? And the answer is Sarah. Sarah's the only woman whose age is mentioned at her death in the Bible. And so the Bible honors her by recording that, 127 years old. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, also honors her, having her in that hall of faith section of Hebrews and calling her a woman of faith. Though dead, Sarah has one more role to play here in today's text. It's a role that, like the well back in chapter 21 and the negotiation over water rights, might be lost on us in our modern context. But look with me at verses 3 through 9. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of the God among us, of God, rather, among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites and the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, 
which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in, the, in your presence as property for a burying place. There's a lot going on in this section and in the section to come, actually. The interaction between Abraham and the Hittites is really interesting, and, and you get into lots of the cultural things that are going on. Why do they call him sir uh, and a prince? Why does he bow to them? There's a lot of really interesting things, but we're not going to get into that this morning. Um, and we're going to look instead at the fact that Abraham here is having this interaction with the Hittites, who are the natives of Canaan, and he makes a purchase. He negotiates the purchase of land. And that's actually a theological point in this sermon, just as the access to the well with King Abimelech back in chapter 21 is a theological point. It's part of God's covenant story. You see, God has promised that Abraham's family will occupy this territory, the, the, the land of Canaan, the chosen country, the promised land. But this is not yet a reality for Abraham. And so Abraham's wife, Sarah, has now died. Why does he wish to bury her and Hebron at all in the land of Canaan? We should ask ourselves that. Again, because we're moderns, we probably don't associate much with this and, and don't see what's going on here. But think about it. Even in today's culture, when we bury someone we love, where do we usually bury them? Or inter their remains? At home. Close to our home, right? Now, we're such a transitory culture that, that this, is, this is not as common today, but usually you go back to your family plot. You go back to your roots, to where you came from. What does Abraham do to bury Sarah? Does he take her back to Ur? No. He buries her here in Hebron, which if you look at a map of the Holy Land, is right smack in the middle of the Holy or the Promised Land. What's Abraham saying in doing this? How is this speech and action a way of trusting in God's promise? Well, he's taking that most dearly beloved wife of his and burying her here in Hebron. Here in Hebron. And going through some trouble to do it. Right? Abraham's reaction to Sarah's death doesn't shake his faith, but rather confirms that lesson of last week, that Abraham sees God's promises coming true, and of course we know that Abraham sees God's promises span generations, and eventually will look towards the resurrection of the living and the dead. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, we read from the Apostle Peter, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. As a follower of God, Abraham trusts in promises yet unseen. And I believe that Abraham here, like Sarah, sees that like Sarah, he too may die 
before the promises of Genesis chapter 12 are fulfilled. So Abraham starts to realize that he too may die, like Sarah, before God's promises are completely fulfilled. What does this say to the church and to us? Well, as God's chosen people, as God's New Testament people grafted into Israel, the church has a great woman of faith, a great grandmother, or godmother, if you will, in Sarah. We see someone who persists to the end in faith and becomes the mother of the Hebrew people, the mother of God's chosen people of the Old and New Testaments in faith. And Hebrews tells us that she's a model of faith. She provides an example of a great woman to emulate, not in her imperfect deeds, she wasn't flawless, but in her persistent faith. Like us, Sarah has moments of great faith in God's promises and great doubt, lacking trust in God at times. Like us, Sarah is not without flaw. She misused her maidservant Hagar because she wasn't able to trust in God's promise, remember? She laughed at God's promise that she would conceive, remember? She allowed her jealousy to drive Hagar and then Hagar and Ishmael away, remember? But as Hebrews says, she was nevertheless a model of faith. Hebrews 11.11, we read, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised underline that last part. Since she had considered him, that is God, faithful who had promised. Despite moments of doubt, Sarah was a woman of persistent faith, believing in God's promise and believing in her husband's call or vocation. All of us should admire the faith of this virtuous wife and women should imitate her in this. Sarah was a woman who loved and obeyed and encouraged her husband. She believed in her husband, Abraham, who removed her from her own land, from her own family, from her own people, from her own culture, all to follow God's call. All to follow God's call and vocation. And all of us should admire that. Sarah was also long-suffering. She suffered with her husband for years, waiting for God to fulfill his promise. For those of us who have endured trials in marriage, this should be a great encouragement. And for those of us that have endured the particular trial of infertility, look at Sarah. Can you imagine her long-suffering in this? For For the years that she went through before Isaac, and yet she remained faithful. Sarah was faithful and loyal. And when Abraham sinned against her even, making faithless choices that put her at great danger, I don't know, like putting her in Pharaoh's harem and then Abraham's harem by his weird scheming, she was nevertheless loyal to Abraham. Despite his flaws and sins against her, she remained true to him. Even Sarah's own sins like trying to force God's hand in the promised son by offering her maidservant Hagar 
was out of loyalty to her husband because she wanted to see this promise succeed. It was mistaken, and yet that seems to be her motive. And by faith in God's grace, Sarah finishes well. She begins a barren woman and ends the grandmother of God's chosen people. Women of the church can learn from her as a wife of faith. And of course, men of the church can learn from her too. Abraham speaks and acts on things unseen just as Sarah does. The faith of Sarah and Abraham and them together illustrates an even more important point. The church and each member of her must trust in God's promises in things unseen. This point endures for us today, that the church and each member of her must trust in God's promises and things yet unseen. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now that's talking about the great lineage of faith that comes to the church, but it's also talking about you and I as part of that same church. That we press on towards a heavenly country, towards the promise of something unseen. Sarah and Abraham speak and act and trust in God's promise. In today's text, Abraham goes through this trusting act of purchasing and burying Sarah in that promised land. And so this text asks us and challenges us with the question, am I speaking and acting as someone seeking after the homeland promised by God? the kingdom of heaven? Am I acting and speaking as someone seeking after a homeland that's not here, but is unforeseen in the kingdom of heaven? That question, brothers and sisters, should pervade our lives in everything that we do. That question should shape what we say and what we do. As to growing in faith, it should be asked of our church attendance, of our giving of ourselves to God and worship, of our giving of ourselves to study and community, and of taking time to pray and being fed with the sacrament of Holy Communion. As to our morality, as to our inner being, as to the choices that shape our character, we also must ask this question, acting and speaking in accordance with God's law. Am I acting and speaking in accordance with God's law or in accordance with what's around me, what's influencing me. In our ethics, in our business ethics, notice Abraham here is doing business. How we speak and act with other people in the workplace should be filtered through this lens. Am I conducting myself honorably in my business dealings? Am I conducting myself truthfully? In our politics, how we speak and interact with other human beings made in God's image as part of a larger society. That should be filtered through this. Am I saying, speaking, and acting as someone seeking after another homeland? In our leisure, 
how we speak and act as we're relaxing. In our long-term planning, how we speak and act in what we plan for generations to come. We must ask ourselves, am I speaking and acting as someone who's seeking after a homeland promised by God? In our Philippians passage today, we're told to set our minds on heavenly things. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. The beginning of the passage that I ended with. I'm sorry, verse 20, in the middle of that passage. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We must trust in that promise revealed in Christ Jesus fully and not hedge our bets. We must look to that city that awaits us, full of truth, full of goodness, full of beauty, full with God himself. And we must look and secure ourselves on God's promise, the promise of salvation, the promise of abundant life, the promise of fulfillment in all things in Jesus Christ. Referencing Abraham's faith in this passage Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, quotes the philosopher Plato in the Theatus. And Clement writes, The philosopher Plato puts forth happiness as the goal of life and says it consists in the greatest possible likeness to God. That happiness consists in the greatest possible likeness to God. That's a Christian quoting a pagan philosopher, Plato, who has it right. In other words, the key to happiness is acting in accordance with God and trusting in him and looking at this heavenly country and trusting in promises yet unfulfilled and unseen. So this should cause us, friends, to stand firm in our beliefs. It should cause us to be true to what we know. It should cause us to not be deceived when others are deceived, to have clarity in what is true. When the world seems to have gone mad around you, you rest secure in God's promise. Look, that was, that's the promise, that's the thing that St. Paul said that we started the sermon with. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We can stand firm and we should stand firm. Just as faith in God's promises guided Abraham and Sarah through a barren land, so his promise guides us. We're living in a time when truth and goodness and beauty are continually under attack by many in this country. The seeds of relativism, pluralism, expressionism, lots of isms, are giving rise to mass delusion on many fronts in our country, in morality, in politics, in ethics, in family life. That's not new, friends. The church was birthed in a pluralistic society. The church was birthed and has survived through things like we see today. But our adversary, the devil, has always tried to confuse and trap and cause despair. That's his chief goal, to divert us from the promise, 
to cause us to not see that God will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. The Christian, however, is not to be deceived by such things. He is to live a different way, secure in promise and secure in salvation. And all this is to say that as Christians, part of our job is to point to the certainty of God's promise, to the certainty of his kingdom, not to a mealy-mouthed pie in the sky we go to some great hereafter after we die, but to the certainty that God is true, that God is good, that God is real, and that God's kingdom will come. We must hold fast to objective truth. What is fact is fact, and what is not is not. That we're created and defined by God's promise, revealed in Jesus Christ, not subject to individuals' feelings or cultural perspectives. We must hold truth to the objective good that the best end for men and women everywhere in all times is in being in accordance with God's will, for we were made by him in his image. That's unchangeable. That doesn't change with time or peoples or law. That doesn't change through history, and it doesn't progress. It's something that exists objectively from God an objective reality, that God is a God of objective reality, that the reality of creation is an established order by the Creator who alone has the authority to define it, not something subject to psychological conditioning or personal expressions of liberty. But reality is reality. Like Abraham and Sarah, living in the midst of Canaanites, right? People that don't honor God, In all parts of our life, we're called to be salt and light in this world. To not demure from the true truth, from goodness, or from the reality of God's kingdom, which is to come. And just as Abraham's security in God's promise allowed him to serve as a witness to King Abimelech, so he serves as a witness to the one true God of the Hittites, I don't know if you caught it, but look at verse 6 with me very quickly on page 2. It starts actually with verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, verse 6, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our choicest tombs. You are a prince of God among us. What do we see here? That the Hittites recognize Abraham as a prince of God, as someone different from them, as someone who lives his life and has prospered because of trusting in God's promise, a prince of God. And that, friends, is who you are too. In Christ Jesus, you are a prince or a princess of God, bought by his blood, and you are his adopted son or daughter. And so you're called to be different and to call the world to him, and to point to that kingdom. Be salt and light. And so we must ask ourselves, are we living and speaking as princes or princesses in that heavenly country, that better city to come? Or are we setting our sights here on the things of this world? 
unlike Abraham, we're not just called to be a witness, but we're also called to bring other people into this kingdom. Right? So we're not called just to be a witness to the true, the real, the beautiful, but to call other people into it. But friends, you can't call other people into something that you don't speak and act in accordance with. So the first step is to be a good witness. And then you can call people to that kingdom, to God's love. Draw them into that belief that we await a country unseen, a heavenly city, the city of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.